So our discussion for tonight is actually a, a continuation from last week. Last week we were speaking about mental health in Islam and one of the coping mechanisms and strategies that I spoke about is understanding our belief system. And when you understand our belief system as Muslims, you'll see how it's naturally conducive to reducing stress levels and increasing optimism in the situation that has arisen. Now, this topic of the 17 benefits of trials and tribulations is actually a small Arabic essay. It's written in about six pages or so by a scholar who was known as Sultan al-Ulama. Sultan al-Ulama. He died in the year 660 from Egypt. And the reason why he, had, he was called Sultan al-Ulama was because he had mastered uh, two out of the four madhahib. Like he was the official grand mufti of two out of the four madhahib and referred to him as Sultan al-Ulama. For me, one of the greatest you know, signs of great scholarship is always to see what the scholar has produced, not only in terms of literature, but in terms of the students that they've produced. And two of the greatest students of the Shafi'i and the Maliki Madhab to have come out, Ibn Daqiq al-Eid and uh, Imam al-Qarafi, rahimahumullah, both various specialists in their fields, were produced at the hands of Sultan al-Ulama, Abdul Aziz bin Abdul Salam. So now, I'm not going to get too much into his biography because his biography can take a, a whole session in and of itself, but I wanted to know who we are, whose work we are discussing tonight. And then the second thing I mentioned is that this book actually has been translated and is available uh, for download on the internet. You just look up the benefits and wisdoms behind, the tri uh, behind trials and tribulations. The objective behind the book is the taming of the soul. So the scholars of the past, they always considered the soul to be a wild beast that needed to be tamed. So whenever they would start off teaching their students, it was essays like this that they would start to teach. Because you teach the student how to control your desire. You teach the student how to control their temper. You teach their student how to excel in their morals and their manners and in their ethics. So understand that the objective behind today's session is not purely for the sake of you know, coming together and having a, a nice social activity as a community, but it's also to take the content that is available and to try to implement it in our day-to-day -day lives. Like these are going to be theological points which hopefully we can ingrain in our mind and start, you know, taking that to our heart so that it, infect, uh, it impacts our limbs as well. And the most successful person leaving tonight is the individual that not only engages with the content, but the one that takes notes down and goes back to it thereafter. So if you have something to take notes with, your phone, your laptop, pen and paper, I would highly encourage that you do that. And then the last uh, introduction that I'll give to this uh, small essay is that it is in point form. And then the Imam, he put you know, certain ayat and certain hadith, which I haven't included on the PowerPoint. I have that in my notes over here. But just remember that if you forget something or something goes by, you can either ask and raise your hand or you can actually go back to the book itself and you'll find everything in there. So the objective tonight is to engage with the content and to understand that the next time we are tried with something where we perceive something bad has happened in our lives, what is the silver lining in it? What are benefits and wisdoms that we can derive from that situation? So let us begin in the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the first of them is realizing the greatness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's lordship and his all-encompassing power. When you look at your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it starts with understanding who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is. And one of the names that we learn of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Al-Qadir and Al-Qadir. 
that he is the all-capable and the all-mighty, uh, that he can do as he pleases. Now, why is that important to understand? And why is this the first point that the imam begins with? He begins with this point by reminding that human nature is to become arrogant and to become proud and to think that you are self-sufficient. But if you understand that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Al-Qadir and Al-Qadir, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is just as capable of giving as He is as taking back. And you'll notice that that is our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give us things at times, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will take things away from us at times. So if you understand that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all capable, your relationship should be asphyxiated on the giver and the taker, and not really what has been given or what has been taken. And you'll notice that people go through internal calamity when they get asphyxiated on what has been given and taken, as opposed to who is giving and taking. Now why is that important to understand? If you remember from last week, one of the theological points we discussed is that Allahu arhamu bi'ibadihi min hadihi biwaladiha. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is more compassionate, loving and caring towards his slaves than the mother is towards her child. Meaning that everything that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does in our lives is a manifestation of that love, compassion, mercy and justice just like a mother would treat her child. All of it is a manifestation of that. So now when you believe this and internalize this, you will understand that just because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had given me a job and has now taken it away, it does not mean that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves me more or loves me less. What it means is that there is a wisdom and a benefit behind it that I need to submit to. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all capable and all knowing and all wise. And I will submit to that. And that is point number one. Point number two, realizing the humility and dejection of servitude, it is to this, the saying of Allah, exalted is he, he points to, where he says in Surah Al-Baqarah, أَلَّذِينَ إِذَا صَابَتْهُمْ مُصِيبَةٌ قَالُوا إِنَّا لِلَّهِ وَإِنَّا إِلَيْهِ رَاجِعُونَ That when you become a servant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it requires humility. It's not enough not just to be arrogant and proud, but the slave of Allah is meant to have humility. What does humility actually look like? In the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, humility looks like dependence. So when you need something, just like a baby cries out for its mother's milk, the slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cries out to Allah that, Oh Allah, I need this, I am desperate of this, this is harming me, so take it away from me. That is how the slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is meant to be. Now the shaykh, he mentions this ayah, that when the believers are tested by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they say, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. That indeed to Allah we belong, and to Him we shall return. Meaning that we are the possession of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We are the property of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He does with us as He pleases. So I want you to think of just how little children, you know, they play with their toys. Putting them here, placing them there, you know, sometimes throwing them across the room. They go through all sorts of situations. We are the property of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we belong to Allah. Now tied to this point directly is that the life of this world was never meant to be the goal. The life of this world was never meant to be the goal. 
The life of this world is just a vehicle to the hereafter. It is a vehicle to the hereafter to see who will be entered into the hellfire and who will be entered into paradise. And not only who will be entered into paradise, but where in paradise will we eventually end up? Where in paradise will we eventually end up? Now here's a very important point to understand. If you have come to embrace that Jannah is your ultimate goal and Jannah is your final destination, then understand that you will only enter Jannah through the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only gives His mercy to those who are obedient to Him. Now as for the ranks of Jannah, then those are contingent upon your deeds. Those are contingent upon your deeds. The more deeds that you do that are beloved to Allah, the higher your rank will be. And it is with this frame of mind of thinking that inshallah I'm doing these good deeds to earn the mercy of Allah, but these good deeds will also help me get higher ranks in Jannah. Keeping that in mind, then everything that happens in your life, you start looking for how can I incur reward in this situation? How can I incur reward in this situation? And that is the fundamental question you want to like ingrain into your heart. That at any given point, at any given time, in any given circumstance and situation, how can I earn ajr at this given point? And the more you start to incur that reward, the more you will end up leaving those deeds and those actions that you cannot earn reward from. Those deeds and those actions that you cannot earn reward from, they will naturally start going away from you and you will no, no longer want to engage in them. Which brings us to number three. Actualizing sincerity for Allah, exalted is He. This is because there is no way to repress hardship except by recoursing to Him and there is no one that can depend on... There is no... Uh, there is no one that one can depend on to remove it except him. And he mentions a, a, a series of ayat, which uh, I will explain shortly. So the importance of, uh, of sincerity. I want you to think of what happens in your moments of extreme hardship. In extreme difficulty, what happens to your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? When the slaves of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are tried and tested, their natural reaction is to turn back to Allah. And in fact, it's not just the slaves of Allah, as human beings. You know, there was that, that joke that you can even turn an atheist into a believer if you put him onto a plane that is going down or is turbulent, right? They will naturally call out to a higher power. Now, similarly for believers, I want you to look at our own selves. A difficult moment comes in your life, what happens at that time? You naturally want to pray. You naturally want to make dhikr. You naturally want to recite Quran. And you will actually go out of your way to give sadaqah and be kind to people. Because you want this mercy, you want this compassion from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is what the shaykh is referring to as sincerity over here. That your focus just becomes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Your ultimate goal becomes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that can only be attained through these calamities and hardships. Because if you look at life at the opposite end of the spectrum, when life is comfortable and life is good, you have everything that you want. What happens to your relationship with Allah? You'll naturally become heedless. You'll naturally stop doing as much. You'll naturally decrease in your dhikr, in your Quran recitation, in your sunnah prayers, and all of the other actions. So if these tribulations 
brought about no other good other than making us sincere and closer to Allah, that would have been sufficient as a wisdom and a benefit. Then the Shaykh goes on to mention an ayah in the Quran in Surah Al-An'am, verse number uh, 17. وَإِنْ يَمْسَسْكَ اللَّهُ بِضُرٍ فَلَا كَاشِفَ لَهُ إِلَّا That if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was, allow, was to allow a harm to take place to you, then there's no one that can take away that harm other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So harm is allowed to happen to you, but why is harm allowed to happen? That's something that we'll come to see in a little while. It is a result of the actions that we do. When we make bad decisions, when we do bad actions, there are bad consequences that happens in our lives. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not hold us accountable for all of them. Because he goes on to say, kathir," That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala pardons much. So if we were to receive full-fledged punishment for every sin that we commit, none of us would be alive today. But the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends these trials and tribulations our way and allows us to live through them even though there may be some pain affiliated to it then this is from the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he's pardoned a lot of our sin and is only holding us accountable uh, for a little bit which brings us to number four turning to Allah in penitence exalted is he and directing one's heart to him the Arabic word that the Shaykh uses over here is the word inaba. It is the word inaba. And we're going to learn a couple of Arabic terms tonight. It's good to understand what they mean because they repeat themselves in the Quran quite a bit. They refer, repeat themselves in the Quran quite a bit. So when we hear the word inaba, what does that actually mean? Ibn al Qayyim, rahimahullah, one of the great scholars of the past, he says, inaba is to love Allah, to submit to Allah, to turn to Him and to turn away from everything besides him. So to love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So loving Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is loving Allah for who he is, and loving Allah for the good that he has given us in our lives, and from the harm that he has protected us from. Then turning, uh, then submission to him, is submission to the commands of Allah, meaning that Allah has commanded us to pray, so we pray five times a day. And it is submission to the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Not questioning why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decree this and why did this actually have to happen. So you submit to the command and you submit to the decree. And then you turn away from him and turn away from, turn, turn to him and turn away from everything other than Allah. One of the beautiful hadith the Prophet sallallahu alayhi mentions is that the most beloved of deeds to Allah are the obligatory deeds and then the supererogatory deeds. And when the slave of Allah takes an arm's length to Allah, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes even closer. When the slave of Allah walks, then the literal translation is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes running. But that is in a manner and uh, befitting His Majesty subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then what is the conclusion of this? That the slave of Allah keeps getting closer and closer to Allah till he becomes the eyes through which Allah, till the slave sees, till Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala becomes the eyes through which he sees and the ears through which he hears and the feet through which he walks. Now that isn't understood literally, but what that means is that as you get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you will only see good things and Allah will protect you from seeing bad things. 
You will only go towards good things and Allah will protect you from bad things. And this is you know, something interesting that if you look at the life of the Prophet ﷺ before Nabuah, before prophethood, there is this story where the Prophet ﷺ is a young shepherd boy. And he's on the outskirts of Mecca and one of his colleagues tells him, hey, there's this massive celebration in Mecca, you should go check it out. So before prophethood as this young shepherd boy, Muhammad wasallam, he goes to Mecca and he gets there early. So he sits in the shade of the Kaaba and he ends up falling asleep. And he doesn't wake up till the very next day and the celebration has finished. So the very next day he says, you know what, I'll go to the celebration again. And again, he gets there early, sits in the shade of the Kaaba, he falls asleep and again he ends up missing the celebration. Then he goes back to his uh, shepherding area and his colleague asks him, you know, what did you think of the celebrations? And he says, I tried going to it twice, but both times I fell asleep. And then what does his colleague shepherd tell him? That perhaps you were not created to do such a thing. Perhaps you were not created to do such a thing. So what that means is with the purity of heart and the submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will actually protect you from going into those bad situations. And Allah becomes the eyes through which you see, the ears through which you hear, and the feet through which you walk. And this is what trials and tribulations do. That you want to become focused on what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves and turn away from that which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't love. Which brings us to point number five. Submissiveness and supplication. Submissiveness is something that you can either embrace or it is forced upon you. You can either embrace that you're a slave of Allah and there are certain situations that you can't do anything except embrace the situation that you're in. Your car breaks down on the side of the highway, you've tried to do whatever you can. At that point, you just embrace that you know what, I need to sit here Stay still till either someone comes and helps me or I'm able to call CAA or I'm able to do something else. So you can either embrace the situation or you're forced into submission. And what's important to understand that embracing the situation doesn't mean that you don't take action. Embracing the situation means that there's no reason to panic or to become frightened because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is ultimately in control and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows what he is doing. And then the second part is supplication to Allah. When you think of supplication to Allah, the most sincere du'as we have ever made is in moments of duress. I want you to think for those parents that have seen their kids on the verge of harm, that when you call out and say, Oh Allah, protect them. Oh Allah, save them. What is the level of sincerity in your heart at that time? What is the level of emotion in your heart at that time? I want you to think about an individual that is on the brink of giving up. They've been trying to get a job for the last two years. There is family pressure. There is social pressure. And then just internally, you don't feel good about yourself. That just when you're on the brink of giving up, what is the type of emotion that appears in your dua at that time when you supplicate to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is as if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala unveils the heart from all of the clunk that is surrounding it and it becomes pure and it connects with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that dua becomes the means of the hardship being taken away. Now on this topic of supplication, this is something I've spoken about in quite a bit of detail, but I want to share just this one thing with you. 
A lot of times we get asphyxiated, you know, how or when is my dua going to be answered? How or why is my dua going to be answered? This question is something that we should not allow to come to the forefront of our mind. I know it is normal human nature. We are very anxious. We want everything instantaneously. But this is not something we should allow to come to the forefront of our mind. Why? Because the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he told his companions that all of your du'as are answered in one of three ways. Either you get what you want when you want it, or it is delayed to a time that it is better for you, or in fact what you're asking for is not actually good for you. In fact what you're asking for is not actually good for you. So when the companions of the Allah heard this, they said that, O oh, Messenger of Allah, if this is the case, then we will only increase in our dua. And the Prophet wasallam says, Wallahu akthar. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has even more to give you. So what we learn from this is that when we make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it isn't on our conditions and rules. It's on the conditions and rules that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sets. If it is good for you, right here, right now, He'll give it to you right here, right now. If it is good for you at a later time, he'll give it to you at a later time. Or perhaps what you're asking for is not actually good for you, so he keeps it away from you. But does that mean that he doesn't give you anything in return? No, not at all. In fact, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you much, much more, and I'll expand upon that in a little bit. But can we think of examples where we made dua to Allah, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't give it to us? I've heard multiple stories of men that have wanted to get married to a particular individual. And this particular individual, they were purely getting married to them for dunyawi reasons. Purely for worldly reasons. And then after, it didn't work out, and he got married to someone else for the correct reasons. For their deen, for their piety, for you know, their, their, their ability to inshallah have a righteous family together. They married them for that reason. And then they think back that had I married that first person, this person would have ruined my deen. This person would have completely made me into a terrible person. Because this person did X, Y, and Z sins. And even till this day, they have not changed. So sometimes what you're desiring is not actually good for you. And that is important to understand. So if you've taken your best step, you've made dua to Allah and you haven't attained it, then don't despair. Don't think that Allah hates you. Don't think that the world is conniving against you. But rather embrace it and say, Alhamdulillah, perhaps Allah has saved me from a greater calamity, which ultimately always comes back to your deen. That as long as your deen is intact, who cares what happens with the dunya. Now this topic of having your du'as answered, Ibn al-Qayyim, he mentions in uh, certain uh, books of his, that people will show up on the Day of Judgment and they will have huge amounts of reward shown to them. So they will say, Oh Allah, I don't recall doing a deed that could have possibly earned me this much reward. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will tell them that these are the rewards of the du'as that you made that were not answered. These are the rewards of the du'as that you made that were not answered. Now what will the slaves of Allah respond at that time? They will respond, Oh Allah, we wish none of our du'as were answered. We wish none of our du'as were answered because of the great amount of reward that awaited them in the hereafter. So now when you're making du'a to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you want Allah's help right here, right now, but it is being delayed, then understand that there's a huge amount of reward that comes with it, which is a point that we're going to be mentioning 
in a little bit. Which brings us to number six. Forbearance. The Arabic word for this is hilm. The Arabic word for this is hilm. And Ar-Raghib al-Asfahani, he defines hilm as it is the ability to control the soul and temperament at the onrush of anger. So meaning, I want you to think someone has accidentally hit you. You're walking, someone shoulder bumps you, or someone was carrying something and they accidentally hit you. Part of the natural human reaction that Allah has created as a self-defense mechanism is that, what we get, is that we get angry, right? So now at that time, if your ability to control your anger, this is considered hilm. But in reality, this is just one perspective of hilm. Al-Jahiz, another one of the linguists of the Arabic language and uh, usul specialists, he says, hilm, it is the abandonment of taking revenge in the state of extreme anger despite the ability to do so. So you have the ability to take revenge, you have the ability to do something wrong, yet you choose not to do it. So that is what is helm. You have the ability to harm someone else because they have harmed you, but you refrain. Now, how does this tie in with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? As we've seen, we need to learn to submit to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And when you're in that situation, and you've submitted to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you realize that there's no getting out of this situation except by the help and permission of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So there's no point getting angry. There's no point becoming obscene and vulgar. There's no point breaking things. You know, this was something I was mentioning last week, that this culture of becoming obscene and vulgar and breaking things, it's a distraction and it doesn't really fix anything. When people swear... Does that actually change their situation? Not at all. When people break things, does that actually change their situation? Not at all. So what is the point of those things? They are just mere distractions from actually solving the issue. So what you want to look at is when calamity strikes, be forbearing at that time. Understanding that when the time is right, I will get out of this situation. When the timing is right, I will get out of this situation. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually praises this in the Qur'an. He says, Inna Ibrahima la'awahun halim. That indeed Ibrahim alayhi salam was tender-hearted and forbearing. Now what is the clearest example that we can think of this in Ibrahim alayhi salam's life? Perhaps the clearest indication of this is when he's thrown into the fire. His people have turned against him and they've thrown him into the fire. What is Ibrahim's natural reaction? To call out to Allah. To say, Hasbi Allah wa ni'mal waqil. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is sufficient for me and he is the best of entrustees. Now when he said that and when he did that, what happened to the fire? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Kuni bardan wa salaman ala Ibrahim. That be cool and peace bearing for Ibrahim alayhi salam. So that forbearing nature of rather panicking and, 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 and you know just losing uh, your, your, your mental state at that time, be calm and composed and be forbearing. And understand that when you do that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will treat you exactly like he treated Ibrahim alayhi salam. Which brings us to number seven. Forgiving the human agent who caused the trial. Certain trials in our life are actually happened by, actually happened by other people. People spread rumors about us. People will lie about us. People will say derogatory things about us. People will not accept us into their inner circles. 
People will pretend to be friends, but will be backstabbing enemies. And the list goes on. That is the reality of human nature, except amongst the righteous. Except amongst the righteous. Now, this concept of forgiving people, there are many, many benefits to it. And this can only be done had you been harmed in the first place. If you were not harmed, then you would not receive the reward. In Surah Al-Imran, and this is the ayah that the Shaykh mentions in verse 134, This is the ending of the ayah. The beginning of the ayah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says, and race forward, race forward to forgiveness from your Lord and a paradise whose expanse is the distance between the heavens and the earth. That it has been prepared for those people that are conscious of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala goes on to describe who are the people that are conscious of Allah. That they are the people who spend in the way of Allah in times of adversity and in times of prosperity. They control their anger and they forgive people. And surely Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves the righteous doers. Now what do we learn from this? That those two things that we were just speaking about, controlling your anger and having help, and also about pardoning and forgiving people, you earn the forgiveness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and you earn a paradise whose expanse is the distance between the heavens and the earth. And that is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prepared for us. In the Qissatul Ifq, or the slandering of Aisha radiallahu anha, where Aisha radiallahu anha was falsely accused of being unchaste, what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tell us in those very verses? That pardon and forgive, do you not love that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala should pardon and forgive you? And through these tests and trials that come across through the way of agents such as other people, when you pardon and forgive those people, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does the same for you. So now I want to stop here just briefly. Someone does something really, really terrible to you. Do you have to forgive them? Do you have to forgive them? And in these sort of situations, I think about the worst case scenarios where young children were abused by the adults that were meant to be taking care of them. You would be surprised, but approximately two out of five Canadians have dealt with similar circumstances. That they were abused as children by the adults that were meant to be taking care of them and looking after them. So how does forgiveness work in such a way where you grew up traumatized, where you can no longer socially function normally because of what you have experienced as a child? How does forgiveness work in such a state? And what I always like to advise people is do not conflate forgiveness with forgetting. You know, they always tell us, forgive and forget. I actually don't think that's a good advice. You should forgive, but always keep in mind what happened so that you don't allow it to happen to yourself again, to your children, or to anyone else. You should never forget the lessons that you have learned from it. And the concept of trying to forget emotion is next to impossible. Once something has been emotionally ingrained with us in the memory, it's almost next to impossible to forget that memory. Memories that have no emotional attachment will forget right away. Memories that do have emotional attachment, it's almost impossible to forget them. So how do we implement this? 
And what I like to tell people is at the end of the day, you can forgive this person in this dunya, and there's a huge amount of reward that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prepared for you in the hereafter. Or you can wait till the day of judgment where human beings come across their oppressors. People that they have done wrong to one another, they will come and stand in front of another and then there's going to be an exchange. The oppressor will continue to give all of their good deeds to the oppressed till there are no good deeds left and only sins in that individual. Then the one that is oppressed will give their sins to this individual until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has deemed justice has taken place. Now when you hear about this and you think about this, you're like, yeah, that's what I want. On the day of judgment, I want to hold this person accountable. I want this person humiliated and disgraced on that day. But what you're forgetting to realize is that if you do not forgive this person in this dunya, you're carrying that burden in your heart till the day of judgment. And is that something you really want to do? Is that something, a burden that you really want to carry, that you're looking forward to this meeting with the person that wronged you, thinking that, you know what, justice will finally be done. Whereas in reality, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not only just in the akhirah, He's also just in this dunya. One of His names is Al-Adl, right? So what we understand from that is that if we forgive in this dunya, not only is there more reward for us, but that justice actually comes sooner. That justice actually comes sooner where not only will we feel better, but they will start to have their accountability in this life before the next. So that is how you understand this topic of forgiving the human agent who caused the trial. Which brings us to point number eight. Patience and steadfastness in the face of the affliction. And this leads to Allah's love and an increase in His rewards. Many, many ayat about this. Wallahu yuhibbu sabirin innama yuwafa sabiruna ajrahum bighayri hisab. So these are two different ayahs where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions that indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves the patient people. And then number two, in the second ayah in Surah Al-Zumar, verse number 10, we actually learn that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will reward the people of patience without hisab, meaning without actual accounting. Certain deeds have certain rewards to them. An individual that prays his 10 or 12 sunnah prayers, Allah has prepared a house in paradise. That is a very specific reward. Whereas in this ayah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He tells us that the people of patience, they will have reward without, a, without specific account. That the greater the test you are feeling, the more patience you are showing, the more reward Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give you. So what does patience actually mean? We go back to Al-Jahiz. And Al-Jahiz says, it is to withhold the soul from misery and displeasure. So when something bad happens, you don't feel miserable and displeasure at the circumstance. To control the tongue from complaining, that you do not complain about the situation and circumstance that you are in. And it is to control the limbs from derangement, meaning from disobeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it is to remain firm upon the laws of Allah in all circumstances and to face adversity with the best of conduct. That is how he summarizes patience. In summary, it is to refrain from doing everything haram. That if an individual, when they're struck by calamity and, their ability to re and they, they have the ability to refrain from doing something haram, 
then this is considered to be patience. This is considered to be patience. And the more patience you are given, then the greater the gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Prophet sallallahu says, none has been given a gift better and more encompassing than patience. Number nine, experiencing joy at the onset of calamity because of the many benefit that it contains. And this is based upon the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, by the one in whose hand is my soul, they, the righteous people, would show joy at the onset of calamity, just as you show joy in times of ease. And the, he mentions a further example from Abdul bin Mas'ud, who says, the situation is comparable to one who is cured from severe illness after drinking foul medicine. After drinking foul medicine. So, I want you to imagine, hypothetically speaking, you go into a jungle. And in this jungle, you see this vicious snake that you are bitten by. And the only way that you can be saved by the venom of this vicious snake is that someone has to take an injection and stab you with it as deep as they possibly can, as quickly as they possibly can, and inflicting the most amount of pain that they possibly can. Would you get angry at the person for doing that if they saved your life? And the answer is hopefully no, that you won't get angry at the person because they just saved your life, because you got stuck, you got uh, attacked by the snake that had this venom. The scholars of the past give this example of the snake and the biting of the venom when they talk about the dunya. That the slaves of Allah, when they get too attached to this dunya, and that dunya actually becomes detrimental to their akhirah, it becomes a barrier between their paradise, it becomes a barrier between their obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. At that point, some pain needs to be inflicted to remind them of their greater purpose, to remind them of their greater purpose. But the slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, once he understands that this pain that I am feeling right now is not a pain of this dunya, but it is a pain that will bring me closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and will increase my reward, they actually start to feel joy. So now imagine you've been bitten, you start to panic that, oh my God, I only have three minutes before I completely die. Is there someone that can help me? Is there someone that can save me? Those three minutes of panic, imagine someone comes within that last 30 seconds and stabs you with the serum that you need to, 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 to beat that venom. How overjoyed would you feel to meet that doctor, to meet that individual that gave you this serum? So this is the example over here that when these tests and calamities come, which are often a result of our over-attachment to the dunya, the pain that you feel is actually met with joy. Because you understand that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not putting you, putting you through this to punish you, but He's putting you through this to get you closer to Him and to raise your ranks in the Akhirah. And that is what the slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala feels, joy at the onset of calamity. That joy is experienced because you understand that there is a greater wisdom and benefit behind it. And let us go to number 10, which is not only do you feel joy, but you are grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Being grateful at the onset of the calamity because of the many benefit it contains, Comparable to this is the case of a sick person thanking a doctor who has just amputated 
one of his limbs in order to save his life, even though this would serve to disable him to some extent. Now, I want to test you a little bit. Last week we said that it was attributed to Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu that the companions, they were grateful in their times of calamity for three things. They were grateful in their times of calamity for three things. Who can remember just one of them? Who can remember just one of them? Our hand in the back, go ahead. Excellent, very good. That was point number two. That the test and trial was not as great as it could have been. That test and trials could always be greater. An individual lost $10, they could have lost $100. So they're thankful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that it was not as great as it could have been. Our sister over here, go ahead. Excellent, that was point number one. That they were grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not try them in their faith. That when it came to the dunya, they understood that the dunya came and went. But to be tried in your faith is a very difficult thing. It is not something that is dealt with easily. So as long as their test was not in their faith, then this was something that they thanked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for. The third one is always the difficult one. You have your hand up. Bismillah. The From the embarrassment of the deed, I will accept that answer. That is great. And I want to know after the class how you remembered that. But the point was, the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed you to be patient and keep your composure. So if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in your moment of calamity allows you to keep your composure and to be patient, then this is something that they were thankful for because not only did it save them from the embarrassment in this dunya, but in the hereafter, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prepared a huge amount of reward for them. So when you understand that these tests and trials bring forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and bring love from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and bring your akhirah, your paradise closer to you, then this is something that the slaves of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are grateful for. So these are the first 10 points that the Shaykh discusses. And you can imagine that you know, we're trying to do this in a matter of a couple of hours. This is something that traditionally students of knowledge would go through over a couple of days, over a couple of weeks, that you would come back every week and you would learn one point. And your goal was during that week to implement it. Now, for the sake of our study, what I'm hoping for is that after tonight, when you go home, you're going to download the book. And you're going to recap some of the material that we've taken. And you're going to choose two or three of them, because all of them is going to be impossible, that you want to try to implement in your daily life. You want to try to implement in your daily life. And just notice that the next time you're struck by calamity, you go back to, you know what, I committed to implementing gratitude at times of calamity. What can I be grateful for right now? You start off with the list from Umar ibn al-Khattab and you try to build upon that in your own life. The point of this knowledge is not for it to be theoretical, but it, for it to be transformational. And that's what we want to see. That the knowledge that we receive, it transforms our lives for the better. And this is one of the uh, texts that the students used to start with. And I thought it would tie in perfectly with our session last week as well. So we will conclude with that. Remember, homework, go home, download the book, go through the 10 points, trying to find something to implement. And inshallah next week, we'll do a quick recap of the first 10 points. And then we'll go into the seven remaining points as well to conclude the book. 
Jazakum Allah khairan once again for attending and we apologize for the inconvenience but we hope to see all of you again next week Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik ashhadu la ilaha illa ant astaghfiruka wa atubu ilaik wa assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh